heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening and there was morning. It was the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seeds in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky, uh, to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light to the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. And God set them in the vault of the sky to give light onto the earth, to govern the day and the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea, and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said that the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground and the wild animals each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, 
and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work and he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Carl. Well, it's nice to be back uh, in the harness, as they say, or as they used to say 50 years ago, but... uh, I think we can rediscover that saying. I think that would be a bit of fun. Uh, but it's nice to be back. And uh, this morning we're beginning, as Eric said, uh, this series on the book of Genesis. And it seems like a, a kind of an obvious place to start as we begin another year. We're a few weeks into it, uh, but we're still close to the beginning. It seems a fitting place as we begin a year to begin where the Bible begins. Genesis is, I think, a remarkable book. Uh, it's remarkable because it provides a foundation for everything that comes after it. Uh, It provides a foundation for how we understand God and how we understand the world and how we understand ourselves. It tells us why the world is as it is. And it begins to map out the way that God uh, had planned to put the world to right. It's a remarkable book because so much of what is worked out in the book of Genesis, uh, sorry, which is worked out later in the book uh, in the Bible, is already there right at the beginning. Well, uh, this morning we're beginning at the beginning of the beginning, uh, and we're looking at that very first chapter, Genesis chapter one, uh, and it's a chapter, no doubt, uh, as Eric has already alluded to, it's a chapter uh, that has occasioned quite a lot of controversy. Christians themselves differ in how they understand. Uh, this chapter, some people see a massive gap between verses 2 and 3. Other people see each day as symbolic and representing long periods of time. Others see each day as a genuine 24-hour day, but then those days being separated themselves by long periods. And so each day is kind of a decisive act of God in the long creation process of God. Other people see seven days of strictly uh, 24 hours. So Christians disagree amongst themselves on how to understand these chapters, or this chapter. Genesis 1 has also copped a fair bit of scorn from atheists. Uh, There's a general belief that science had made belief in God untenable. Don Carson, uh, a Bible teacher, makes a comment that in his many visits to universities over the years, as he's met uh, lecturers and academics from the various faculties, his personal observation has been that there seems to be many more Christians coming from the science faculties than there are Christians coming from the arts faculties. And I think that's probably a generally correct observation. You see, it's one thing to sit back in your armchair as a philosopher, and to think about how the world works and and how you think it works. But once you start investigating the mechanisms, the scientific mechanisms which make the world turn around, it just works too well. It's all too neat. It fits together too nicely. Well, Genesis 1 raises lots of issues, and uh, we don't have 
the opportunity to deal with all those this morning. Uh, as Eric said, there'll be a little bit of time for question and answers after the sermon and maybe uh, if people are interested, there might be an opportunity in time to come for an evening session on some of this stuff. Uh, but we can't cover all that this morning. But what I, wanna, what I do want to do is to say just a few things about science. Uh, I want to highlight a few of the ways that science and Genesis 1 agree. And then I want to talk a little bit about what Genesis 1 teaches us about God, ourselves and the world. I should say before we begin, I don't claim to be a scientist or to have all this stuff uh, under my, uh, within my grasp, uh, but I still think there are a number of things that can be said cautiously, uh, but also use, usefully as well. Well, first of all, I think it's worth pointing out that the situation with science is a lot more complicated than people recognise. One of the problems that physicists face at the moment looking at the universe is that the galaxies in our universe seem to be spinning too quickly. Uh, I don't know when the last time was you, you got a weight on a piece of string and you swung it around your head, but what you know is when you do that is that that weight wants to just fling off uh, away from you. And it's only because you're holding onto the rope that you're keeping it in uh, that it keeps spinning around like that. And it's a bit the same with galaxies as well. Uh, you need a force to hold them in. Gravity is the force which holds them together and keeps them from spinning out uh, and going everywhere, basically. But the trouble is that there's not enough matter in the galaxies to provide the gravity that's needed to keep the galaxies together. To solve that problem, physicists have uh, postulated something called dark matter, which is basically something that you can't see, something that you can't detect, something that they haven't observed, but something which has mass and which maybe is holding the galaxies together. They've also posited something called dark energy, uh, which they use to explain the expansion of the universe uh, the, and the accelerating expansion uh, of the universe. The trouble is, as I said, they haven't been able to observe dark matter directly. The situation uh, bears a remarkable similarity to something that happened about a century ago. Uh, at the end of the 19th century, astronomers noticed that there were uh, disturbances in the orbit of Mercury that they couldn't account for. They plugged it into their equations and they couldn't work out what was going on, why the orbit of Mercury was as it was. Because they couldn't understand, they uh, hypothesised, they, uh, they came up with ideas like an inner asteroid belt that they hadn't discovered that was disturbing the orbit of Mercury, or, or perhaps another planet that they couldn't see that was disturbing the orbit as well. It wasn't, in fact, until Einstein uh, came up with his uh, general theory of relativity that anyone could work out what was going on with the orbit, and they plugged it into Einstein's equations, and it fitted exactly. They came up with an idea to try and solve uh, what they were seeing, uh, but it didn't work. And when uh, other ideas came along, they discovered that their initial thoughts were incorrect. So scientists are hoping to discover this dark matter. Uh, they have the uh, Large Hadron Collider in Paris, you might, uh, sorry, in, uh, in France, in, in Europe. You might have uh, heard about it, and they're hoping to discover these, uh, these dark matter particles. They haven't found them. And they may not find them. They may find them as well. Who knows? But the more time goes on without observing those things, the more it casts into doubt their present theory. In May last year, an article appeared in Scientific American 
uh, describing a potential crisis in physics regarding a related theory called supersymmetry. doesn't matter what it is. Uh, but physicists at the Large Hadron Collider are also looking for supersymmetric particles, some of which may hold the mystery, unlock the mystery to dark matter. Well, this is what one physicist wrote in that article. If these superpartners are discovered, the current angst of particle physicists will be replaced by enormous excitement. You can imagine them all sitting in their rooms around their notebooks. Yes! Uh, uh, the enormous excitement over finally breaching the threshold of the super, of the super world. A wild intellectual adventure will begin. Yet if super partners are not found, we face a paradigm rupture in our basic grasp of quantum physics. Already this prospect is inspiring a radical rethinking of basic phenomena that underlie the fabric of the universe. What's the point? What's the point of all that complicated explanation? The point is this. There's far more uncertainty in science than people generally appreciate. There's far more uncertainty than people generally admit. There are lots of things that scientists don't know and there are lots of examples throughout the history of the world of scientists having to fundamentally rethink their theories. That happened with Einstein's general theory of relativity. It happened with the development of quantum physics as well in the last century. All science is provisional and the science of the beginnings of the universe is more provisional than most. So the situation with science is more complicated than is generally perceived. That's the first thing I think is worth saying as we come to look at this chapter and as we try to explain this chapter to other people uh, that we come into contact with. But there's still some useful things I think that we can say about how Genesis and science uh, kind of cohere without trying to say everything that can be said. Uh, Edgar, Edgar Andrews, in his book, Who Made God?, uses what he calls the scientific method. That is, in science, you often start with an idea, with a hypothesis, and then you test it by seeing whether the world that you observe matches what you expect to see. Physicists are doing that with uh, the idea of supersymmetry. They have a theory about the world, and they test to see whether that theory works by looking at whether the world meets their expectations. In the same way, we can look at the Bible, we can look at Genesis 1, and although we may not be able to answer all the questions or the how questions, we can look at the world and we can see that the world that we observe is in many ways the kind of world that Genesis 1 would lead us to expect. We can look at the world and we can see that in many ways the kind of world that we see is the kind of world that Genesis 1 would lead us to expect. So let me give a few examples of that. First, Genesis 1 leads us to expect a world which had a beginning. Stephen Hawking calls the idea that the universe had a beginning probably the most remarkable discovery of modern cosmology. Most non-Christian religions think that the universe is eternal, mysterious, inconsistent, unpredictable. Aristotle thought the idea of the universe having a beginning was unthinkable. It was madness. It wasn't until last century that astronomers and physicists began to actually think that the universe did have a beginning. Before that, they kind of thought that it had always just been there. Two guys... Uh, 
called Humanson and the other person, Hubble, you probably heard his name, they discovered through observations that the universe appeared to be expanding. Uh, separately, Einstein's theory of general relativity suggested the same thing, but Einstein, interestingly, couldn't bring himself to believe that the universe was expanding and so kind of introduced a fudge factor so that it looked as though it wasn't. The idea of an expanding universe in turn led to the idea that at one point everything must, all matter in the universe must have exploded from some point. In other words, it led to the idea that the universe must have had a beginning. It took decades for scientists, physicists, to accept that idea. Sir Arthur Eddington wrote in 1931, the notion of a beginning is repugnant to me. And Sir John Maddox, the former editor of the uh, journal Nature, described the idea of the universe having a beginning as thoroughly unacceptable. Now the idea that the universe had some kind of beginning is widely accepted. Arno Penzias, a physicist and Nobel Prize winner, wrote, the best data we have concerning the Big Bang are exactly what I would have predicted had I nothing to go on but the five books of Moses, the Psalms and the Bible as a whole. Genesis 1 leads us to believe that the universe had a beginning and there's considerable scientific evidence to show that that's true. What kind of beginning that was is a much more complex question and not every scientist, Christian or not, accepts the idea of a Big Bang. But even seven-day creationists are happy with the idea of a universe with a beginning and a universe which has expanded in some way and in some fashion. So Genesis 1 leads us to expect that the universe had a beginning and there's scientific corroboration of that fact. Second Genesis 1 leads us to expect a universe that is structured, the account in Genesis 1 of the beginning of the world is highly structured. It's structured uh, in the first place in the way that the days are arranged. So Simon, do you want to put up that first slide? So you can see here there's, a, there's a, quite a clever structure with how everything is arranged. Uh, on day one, light is created. Uh, on day four, the sun and the moon and the stars are created. Uh, on day two, the sky and the waters are created uh, on day five, the, the, the things that live in the uh, sky and the water are created. Uh, on day three, the land and the plants are created. And on day six, the animals and the humans which live on the land and which eat the plants uh, are created. Uh, thanks, Simon. The, the structure of the passage itself is... Uh, well, the passage itself is highly structured... But not only that, the way that every day in the passage unfolds is very methodical as well. So take, for example, day three. First God separates the water and the land, then he causes the land to produce vegetation, then there are plants that uh, bear seed, and then there are other plants that uh, bear fruit containing seed. It's all kind of very methodical, very step by step. It's all, in some ways, remarkably uneventful. Uh, a structured description of the creation of the world might not seem that exciting because we're so used to Genesis chapter 1. But it's interesting to compare Genesis 1 with, say, another ancient creation uh, story. There's a famous creation account called the Enuma Elish. Uh, in that creation, uh, in that 
account, creation is the result of a kind of a cosmic war between different gods. The earth is created from the body of a slain god called Tiamat. Half of her body becomes a sky. Something's created in her stomach. I can't even work out what it is, to be honest. Uh, Her nostrils are plugged up for some reason and her eyes become the source of the Euphrates and the Tigris rivers. Human beings are made from the blood of another god who was killed and the main reason that they are made is because the gods are a bit sick and tired of all the work that they have to do and so they create these human beings to kind of do their work for them. The world that the Enuma Elish leads us to expect is a world that doesn't make sense, a world which is nonsensical. The world that Genesis 1 leads us to expect, though, is a world which does make sense, a world which is highly structured, a world which is ordered and consistent, and that's precisely the kind of world that we find, a world which follows physical laws and physical constants, and a world which can be described with mathematical precision. Genesis 1 leads us to expect that the universe had a beginning. It leads us also to expect that the universe is structured. Thirdly, uh, it leads us to expect that creation is just that, the creation. So in many ancient religions, things like the sun, the moon uh, and the moon were gods to be worshipped. In Egypt, uh, the classic example, the sun was the god Ra. But here in Genesis 1, the sun is just that, it's just the sun. It's literally a source of light. It's hardly a, uh, a rigorous scientific uh, description, you know, that you might give now. You know, you might, now it, you know, it's a flaming ball of, uh, what, of matter or whatever and spewing out uh, the results of fusion reactions and all kinds of things like that. Genesis 1, it's just a source of light. It's a simple description, but it's a true one, isn't it? It's almost boring, in fact, compared to the Enuma Elish, where so much of the world there is bits and pieces of various gods. The physicist Stephen Barr, in his book Modern Physics and the Ancient Faith, writes, it's often said that science has disenchanted the natural world, that is, made it less mystical. But to a large extent, that had already happened with the Hebrew Bible. The universe was no longer alive with gods, but was a work of cosmic engineering. We may not be able to answer every scientific question uh, that there is, but we can say at least that the world that we see is the kind of world that we would expect to see on the basis of Genesis 1. So two things. Uh, The situation with science is more complex than people generally appreciate. And the world that we see correlates with what we would expect from Genesis chapter 1. But none of that really addresses what Genesis 1 is actually about. Genesis 1 was written to lay down important foundations for how we understand God uh, and ourselves and the world. And there are three which I think are the most important that I want to mention this morning. First of all, Genesis 1 shows us that God made everything. The Bible begins with, in the beginning God created. Before anything existed, God was there. And everything that now exists, it exists because God made it. He made the heavens and the earth. 
He made the universe. He made light. He made the sky and the waters. He made the land and the sea. He made the plants and the animals. He made us. That truth is absolutely essential to understand if we're going to understand anything else about the Bible. For example, when God calls us to love him, it's because we owe him everything that we are, because he created us. So suppose that you're a nobody. Just pretend. Just pretend for a moment that you're a nobody. Uh, and that you have, you have nothing, no prospects, no hope of advancement. But then somebody comes along and gives you a helping hand. They give you the money that you need to get on your feet. They feed you. They pay for you to get the best education that you can. They get their rich friends to provide you with a plum job. Would you love them for it? If they asked you to love them, would you love them? Would you feel that you owed them something, that you were obliged to them in some way for all that they'd done for you, for making you what you were? We think of ourselves as self-created beings. We are what we've made ourselves to be. But we haven't created ourselves. God has created us and he's created the world in which we live and we owe him everything. We owe him our love. We owe him our allegiance. God has made, us, made everything and we owe him for that. But God has also made everything according to his own pattern. Suppose that you make a beautiful clay vase and you spend hours kind of shaping it and, uh, and glazing it and then someone comes along and decides to use it as a hammer to uh, build their next piece of cabinet furniture. You'd be outraged. But we kind of do that to the world that God has made. God has made it with a pattern to be enjoyed in a certain way. And we come along with our own ideas, our own pattern, and try to live according to that. God made everything, including us, and so we owe him everything. We owe him our love, and we owe him our gratitude, and we owe him our allegiance. Genesis 1 shows us then that God made everything. Second, it shows us that God made everything good. There's a constant refrain. You might have noticed it as Eric read. And God saw that it was good. So for example, verse 25, God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And last of all, when that work is all completed, we're told in verse 31, God saw all he had made and it was very good. The world that God made is a beautiful world. 20 years ago, the Hubble Space Telescope took a famous picture of three columns of gas which came to be known as the Pillars of Creation. They just retook the image uh, for the 20th anniversary. It doesn't get more exciting at NASA than to take a photo again. Uh, but they did, and it's very beautiful. Simon, do you want to put up the, uh, the first slide? So this is called the Pillars of Creation. Isn't that lovely? I think that's quite lovely. Uh, so that's from the, uh, the, from the universe. And then uh, the next one. 
That's, a, that's the first solar flare from 2015. It happened this past week. Uh, you can see it exploding out the side there. Uh, the next, next slide. That's a mathematically generated picture. Isn't that beautiful? That's called the Mandelbrot set. Uh, you might have heard of it. Uh, or the next one. Look at that. And it was one of my second favourite things in, in all the world. Isn't under, how good's that, Gwyn? Can you see the surfboard? <laughs> Underwater photo. I just think it's amazing. And then prepare yourself for the greatest beauty of all. Simon? There it is. <laughs> Doesn't get better than that. You could, you could weep, couldn't you? That's called Euler's Identity. And uh, it's a special case of Euler's formula, which the uh, famous physicist Richard Feynman called, uh, that, he called that equation a jewel. So there you go. I'm not the only one. Thanks, Simon. You might not appreciate the last one as much as I do, but they're beautiful images, aren't they? And I'm sure you have your own beautiful images in your mind uh, and at home, uh, the places that you go, the, the places that you walk, the things that you see. We live in a beautiful world, and that beauty glorifies God. You know, I love the weather. You get into trouble for talking about the weather, uh, but I love it. It's so endlessly fascinating. Every day, uh, it's exciting to open the curtains and to see what the day is going to be like. There's the uh, constant changing from day to day. Even within a day, the weather can change. And there's that slow variation that you get from season to season. Every day, you ask, what will the colours be? Deep reds, washed out blues, or that really deep blue that you sometimes get, which is just so amazing. The dark greys, those ominous clouds in the horizon kind of lumbering towards you. To see what the flowers will be like today, what flowers will come out as the weather warms up. To see the deep greens. I have this hydrangea outside in my front garden. I, it, it, sometimes the green of the leaves is just so dark. It's astonishing. And set against those, the beautiful colours, the multifaceted colours uh, of the flowers. The weather brings new smells. That smell that you get after it's just rained. Do you know And you get those smells coming up from the ground? The weather brings new sounds, the crackling of the leaves underfoot in autumn when, everything's co- when the ground is just covered. The squidging and the splashing of the ground underneath your feet after it's just rained. The sound of a car as it speeds through a puddle. It's so interesting. It's so fascinating. It's so beautiful. And it all displays the grandeur of God. Jared Manley Hopkins, a poet, wrote, The world is charged with the the grandeur of God and it will flame out like shining from shook foil. Isn't that a wonderful picture? Just as you shake foil and the light springs out. So the world is charged with the grandeur of God. Genesis 1 shows us that God made everything. It shows us that God made everything good. 
Last of all, Genesis 1 shows us that God made the world without sin. The world that God made was not only good in that it was beautiful, it was good in that there was no decay, no death, no bitterness, no reprisals, no wars, no brutality, no children lost in infancy. There's no suggestion in these chapters of any of those things. It's all good. It was very good. We'll come in a few weeks to Genesis 3 where the Bible explains what went wrong with the world. But the basic reason is the reason that we saw just before, that even though God made us and we owe him, we try to make the world our own world. We try to live without God. We try to remove God from the world that he's made. But God made the world good. And that means that the suffering and the misery that that we find in the world is not how God made it to be. God made the world good. And what misery there is in our world is the fault of humanity as a whole. But Genesis 1 doesn't just show us then a glimpse of what the world was, a lost world that we can't get back to. Genesis 1, in a way, also gives us a vision of what will be. When John began his gospel of the life of Jesus, he chose to begin it with an, with an echo of Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning was the word, he wrote, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The word that, Je- that John was talking about was Jesus. And John chose to begin his gospel like that, not just because he wanted us to know that Jesus was God, He wrote it like that because he wanted us to know that the coming of Jesus was the beginning of a new creation. It was the beginning of a remaking of the world. Just like God had made it in the past, Jesus was going to make it new again. Jesus was going to unmake sin and death and disease and decay Jesus, we're going to remake the people of God and make people into his image and his likeness. I love the weather and I love the seasons and I love those photos from deep space and I love those photos from under the water and I even love those equations and the fact that you can understand God's world rationally and sensibly. I love that. But the next time you stop to take in the beauty of the world, think of this if those things are beautiful now with all the sin and misery that plagues our world imagine how beautiful they'll be when Jesus comes to put this world right imagine how lovely the flowers will be when God's people are saved once and for all Imagine what it would be like to open the curtain on those days and to see the new day and not to have to think, well, I wonder what's going to spoil it. You see, we live, as it were, at the moment in the night. We see the glory of eternity, but we see it only by the light of the moon. It's dim. 
It's dark. Its glory is suppressed. But even now in Jesus Christ, the first cracks of dawn have begun to shed their light. And one day the sun will rise again. The sun will rise as it always does, with healing in its wings. And then all people will see the glory of God. We'll see the glory of God in the world that he has made and the world that he has remade in his son, Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, the world is charged with your grandeur and it flames out at every moment and in everything we see. Lord, we thank you for those amazing pictures from the depths of space, of the beautiful colours in your creation. We thank you for the demonstration of your power in those images of the sun as this star explodes and spews out energy and power. This star which lights our world which gives us warmth, which marks out our days. Lord, we marvel at your creation and how good it is. And yet, Lord, we confess that so often we fail to give you the glory that you deserve on account of it. Lord, forgive us for that and help us to enjoy the beauty of your world as an expression of your beauty and your glory and your majesty. And Lord, as we see those things and as we feel in them the tension of sin as well, which mars our world, Father, we ask that you would help us to long for that day when Jesus remakes his creation, not just in the form that it was at the beginning of time, but remade perfect and pure with a newness that far exceeds that old creation, a creation in which we dwell with you face to face, know you and see your glory. Father, we ask all this for Jesus' sake. Amen.